Episode 55, The English Civil War and the Restoration, and a bit about the Thirty Years' War. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. When we last left the British monarchy back in episode 53, King James had come to the throne and he had finished writing his famous King James Bible. No, no, of course, he didn't actually write it, but he did commission it. And for its day, the scholarship and translation was actually very good. It was meant to be a replacement for English versions of the Geneva Bible, which was what was being used by the Puritans. So the King James Version was written and authorized to be used in Anglican churches, and that meant that the Puritans didn't like it very much. Now, King James was a firmly committed Protestant, but he also strongly supported the Anglican church over the Puritans. However, as a king, he did a pretty good job of balancing the competing claims of the Puritans, the Catholics, and the Anglicans, but he did favor the Anglicans. However, he was grudgingly admired by all, of, all sides. Now, James had two sons, Henry and Charles. James was intentionally grooming Henry to be the next king. Charles, the younger son, was known to be sort of weak and sickly. But then, in one of those weird little accidents of history that have disastrous consequences, Henry, the older son, contracted smallpox and he died in 1612. Thirteen years later, in 1625, James I died as well, leaving Charles in charge. Charles was a firm believer in the divine right of kings, the idea that kings derived their power from God, not from the people, and that the king answered only to God. Charles and the others who have held this idea, they, they pointed to the Bible to support the idea that God has ordained these kingships. But the Puritans, who were not in favor of the divine right of kings, also pointed to the Bible to support their ideas about having the right to worship in their own ways. So we've already got some tension there. King Charles was also a marginal Catholic, and he showed favor to the Catholic lords in England, and he also married a Catholic, Henrietta Maria, who was part of the French nobility. So we've got some divisions going on, mostly along religious lines, but also in terms of the relationship between the king and parliament, which was still mostly Protestant. Now, parliament at this time was not quite the formal institution that it is today. It was an assembly that was called together on ad hoc basis every so often. It was an assembly of the lords and landowners of England, and it was not the body that actually created most of the national laws. That was the king's job. But it did act as sort of a balance to the king in that the king had to keep the lords happy in order to maintain his political and financial support. Charles, who was unhappy with his support in the parliament, they didn't support him much at all, dissolved the parliament in 1629, and he never called it back. In fact, the parliament did not meet for the next 11 years. Now, this made ruling easier for Charles, but it made it a lot harder for him to raise money because the monarchy basically raised money through the parliament by asking the lords for money from, t from taxes. In 1640, desperate for revenue, Charles recalled the parliament, and immediately the parliament was hostile to him. In fact, it was so hostile that open warfare broke out. In 1642, Charles fled London, afraid for his life, and he went north to Nottingham, and he raised an army to defend himself. Parliament responded by raising their own army. 
On October 23rd of 1642, these two armies met in battle at Edge Hill, and this began a six-year civil war that resulted in the death of over 100,000 men. The parliamentary army was led by a general named Oliver Cromwell, who was a staunch Puritan, but he was also very well-liked by his soldiers and had really strong support from the army. He did a good job commanding the parliamentary forces, and they repeatedly outmaneuvered and defeated the royalist armies. In 1649, after several royalist defeats, Charles the King was arrested, and he stood trial at Westminster, where he refused to acknowledge the authority of the court, saying that only he himself had the authority to convene a court of law. Despite this, they tried him, and on January 30th, he was led to a platform that had been constructed in Whitehall in the center of London, where he was publicly beheaded. It was the first time in British history that a ruling king had been executed. At this point, Parliament was controlled mostly by the Puritans, though it was not a full gathering of the English lords because many of the non-Puritans stayed away. It's known as the Rump Parliament since it was not the full contingent of all the lords. Anyway, the Rump Parliament put General Oliver Cromwell in charge of the government. He effectively ends up ruling as king for the next 11 years, although he didn't call himself the king, he called himself the Lord Protector. The time of his rule is known as the English Commonwealth rather than the English Kingdom. Cromwell did a pretty good job of ruling, actually, except for the fact that with the Puritans in charge of both the executive power, that is the Lord Protector, and the Parliament, a lot of strict religious rules were passed, like rules that banned theaters and performances and things like that, and made church attendance mandatory. Things got even stricter in 1653, when Cromwell also dissolved Parliament, and he basically ruled for the next five years as a military dictator. But in September of 1658, Cromwell died of pneumonia, and his son Richard took his place. But Richard was weak, and he was not supported by the army, and after seven months, he was deposed, and royalist forces took control of London. They invited King Charles's son, Charles II, who had been smuggled to France as a young boy. They invited him back to England to rule. So on May 25th of 1660, Charles II returned to England, and the following year he was crowned king. This is known as the Restoration, since the monarchy was restored. But things were not the same. In exchange for being invited back to take the crown, Charles had to agree to some substantial changes in the relationship between the king and parliament. Charles signed what's known as the Declaration of Breda, which formally recognized and legalized religious tolerance throughout England, and it protected the rights of land ownership of the lords. That is, it limited the power of the king to seize the lands of the English lords. Now, Charles II ruled from 1661 to 1685, a mostly peaceful 24 years, and they're remembered for a flourishing of English arts and literature, and they're also remembered for Charles's many love affairs. He had at least 12 children, but none of them were legitimate heirs to the throne. Then, in 1685, at the age of only 54, Charles died after suffering an apoplectic fit, possibly as a result of mercury poisoning, which he had been experimenting with in his own personal laboratory. Anyway, without an heir, his younger brother James, the Duke of York, who was a staunch Catholic, took power. Parliament was not happy about this, and James's time as the king was short. After only three years, 
Parliament invited William, the Prince of Orange, which is in Holland, to invade England, and Parliament said that they would not resist. Now, William of Orange was married to James's oldest daughter, Mary, so he had a sort of semi-legitimate claim to the throne, sort of. Anyway, in November of 1688, William came across the channel, and he took over without much resistance. James fled to France, and William and Mary took over the rule of England. But again, since they had been invited by Parliament, they had to agree to some concessions, including a new Bill of Rights, which was enacted in 1689. This English Bill of Rights, which the American Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution is consciously modeled after, protected the rights of Parliament more than did the English people and the rights of the Lords in the face of their king. The Bill of Rights made it illegal for the monarch to raise money or raise an army without the approval of Parliament. It mandated regular meetings of Parliament, and it codified in law the right to free elections and free speech. By this time, the late 1600s, the Enlightenment ideas that we talked about last episode were circulated widely among the educated and nobility of England and Europe, and the concept of a social contract between the government and the people was becoming widely recognized. As Dennis the Peasant says in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. You can't get a more concise representation of the idea of a social contract than that. So, as these kings and queens keep getting invited to rule by parliament, Parliament keeps forcing them to agree to rights and protections and concessions in exchange for being allowed to rule. You can see in this the idea that the worldview of Europe is changing. The king's right to rule is no longer absolute. It is given to him, with limitations, by the people. It's a big change in worldview, and it's going to have a lot of consequences in the next 100 years. Anyway, I have to take a step back in time here for a bit at the end of this episode to mention the Thirty Years' War. It, it might deserve its own episode because a lot happens during the Thirty Years, but in the end, it really didn't make that big of a difference in Europe. But it does make a big difference in the New World, so we need to look at it before we go back to the colonies. All these royal families in Europe were related. They were all basically married to one another, and like most families, they all squabbled. Remember how I said there was some trouble because James had married a French Catholic named Henrietta Maria? Well, later, James tried to marry his son, Charles, to the Catholic daughter of the King of Spain, but she rejected him. Ouch. She went on to marry the king of what was left of the Holy Roman Empire. So anyway, these royal families and their countries were always in some war or another. The French and the English fought each other in five separate wars in the 1500s alone. The French also fought the Spanish, and the Spanish and the English hadn't gotten along since the sinking of the Spanish Armada, back when Elizabeth was queen, back in episode 49. And all of these nations engaged in privateering with one another, that is, their ships would go and capture the treasure ships of the other nations, that was sort of open piracy on the high seas, sanctioned by the governments. In 1618, though, the biggest of these squabbles broke out, and there was more or less continuous fighting until 1648, thus the title, The Thirty Years' War. On one side, you had the Holy Roman Empire, Spain, Hungary, Croatia, and for a while, Denmark and Poland. This group was largely controlled by the Habsburgs, one of the largest royal families in Europe. On the other side, you had Sweden, France, Bohemia, England, and Denmark. 
I mentioned Denmark twice there because Denmark switched sides in the middle of the war. In addition to the war, or maybe because of the war, the plague also swept through Europe at this time. Several hundred thousand people died from the war and from the plague. Now, in the end, not too much changed in respect to boundaries and political and religious affiliations as a result of this war, at least not in Europe. But the war did set these nations fully at odds with each other, and this war played out in the New World, especially in North America, where the French and the British were competing for territory and preeminence. And these colonies in the New World took on an increasing importance to the home countries because the Thirty Years' War had the effect of severely depleting the national treasuries. So both these nations, France and England, saw the colonies as ways to restore some of their wealth. So the monarchs of France and Britain had this sense that their colonies were simply money-making ventures rather than legitimate parts of the homeland, and this sense would come back to bite them. The colonists, who saw themselves as equal citizens of England or France, equal with those dwelling back home, would grow to resent, strongly resent, being treated as inferiors, as we will soon see. The colonists were also aware of the English Bill of Rights and of the ideas of the Enlightenment. Join me next episode as we go back across the pond and we look at the 13 original colonies and we see how they are getting along. <laughs>